Hello, fellow podcast travelers. Welcome to Saybrook Insights, a production of Saybrook University, an online, nonprofit, regionally accredited university headquartered in Pasadena, California. Celebrating 50 years this year, our humanistic approach to online education has resulted in thousands of alumni the world over advancing the health and well-being of the communities we serve. My name is Nathan Long, University President and host of this podcast. Today's episode features Dr. Joel Fetterman, Department Chair for the Transformative Social Change Program, which offers both master's and Ph.D. degrees. In this short but powerful episode, Dr. Fetterman and I cover several topics including the current social activism occurring as a result of the recent deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmed Arbery, where we go from here as a society, and how we can continue to advance true transformative social change. To learn more about Saybrook University, visit us online at www.saybrook.edu. And now, Dr. Joel Fetterman. Dr. Joel Fetterman, welcome to Saybrook Insights. It is a true joy and pleasure to have you on today, Uh, especially uh, I think many in our community and beyond are in need of your voice and the voice of our transformative social change program. So I would like for you, if you don't mind, before we get into some of our uh, brief discussion today, if you don't mind, Uh, giving us a little bit of an introduction about who you are and uh, how you came to do the work you're doing at Saybrook. Okay. Well, first, thanks, Nathan. I want to thank you for the opportunity um, uh, to do these broadcasts and to put these uh, messages out into the larger world uh, beyond Saybrook. I think it's an incredible service. Uh, I am the chair of the Transformative Social Change Program. Um, but in my, my life history is, is that I grew up, um, uh, in Cleveland, Ohio and, um, in a kind of sheltered existence. I was, um, I had come from a very loving family. Uh, I was extremely idealistic and utopian and, uh, also very naive about the world around me. So it wasn't, uh, until I went to undergraduate school at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, which was an extremely activist school. It has a reputation for uh, activism that runs back and forward decades all the way through to Mm -hmm. today, um, uh, that I realized that I wasn't the only one who shared these values and visions, and that, in fact, millions of people all over the world shared them. And so from that point forward, I've always been a student of social movements or a participant in them, and sometimes both. Um, And that's included... At various times, the peace and anti-war movements of all kinds. We've had a series of wars to protest over the last several decades. Um, and also um, the um, LGBTQ movement, the climate justice movement, the Arab Spring, Standing Rock, uh, the Occupy movement, and now the Black Lives Matter movement. And um, I want to mention that the second thing I got out of the University of Wisconsin, which carried me through um, to today, was exposure to social theory or social philosophy, which is the idea that we can look at things from a larger systems perspective and try to reshape our world to maximize our values. Um, and given all the injustice in the world, uh, that can mean re-envisioning and re-envisioning alternative possible worlds and alternative possible social, political, economic, and educational structures. And so that led me to get my PhD in political science at the University of Southern California, and in particular, focus on political philosophy and eventually led me to 
uh, come to Saybrook and uh, join in with the uh, originally with the humanistic psychology uh, specialization in social transformation and, and then to uh, uh, help create the transformative social change department and programs at Saybrook. That's very exciting. I, I remember when you pitched that program, I think about now four years ago, uh, well, five, and uh, we launched that in the fall of 2016, and you had a really strong incoming class there that came in and uh, have been growing ever since. So obviously there's a need for it and a desire to uh, see this uh, as a part of an individual's not only learning, but practice in the community. So a lot of a lot of great work uh, that you and your faculty uh, have done uh, on behalf of those students, our communities, and our universities. So appreciate that. So given everything that's been going on these last, really, not just nine days, right? If we're being completely clear, this has been going, the, the, the situation in terms of Black men being killed uh, by police officers, uh, structural racism, structural violence in general, but structural racism in particular informing that. Uh, how do you react to what's occurring right now in the streets of the country in response to George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmed Arbery? Well, I would say that the crisis um, that's, that we are in a crisis, and uh, the cri but the crisis in our country is not the protests on the streets or some of the destructive actions that have been taken by a, a very small segment of those who are out among them. I think the crisis in our country is systemic racism itself and the broader philosophy of white supremacy. Um, and the trigger for all this right now is the police murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and so many others, men, uh, black men and women. Um, but those murders are part of a much broader pattern of police violence and systemic violence against people of color in this country that runs back 400 years. So um, I said the protests are not the problem or the crisis, uh, but I, I do want to go further and say that the protests are not just not the problem. I believe the protests are the solution. Um, <clears throat> I participated in um, uh, many Black Lives Matter protests over the last several years, uh, including a couple in San Francisco over the last week. And they bring together a multicultural community of Black, Brown, Yellow, and Red, and White people, the great majority of whom are consistently peaceful and nonviolent, and who are committed to uh, valuing and cherishing Black lives and creating changes in our country and world that make those lives safer and better and possible in the first place. Um, I also want to comment on the word riots that's been used uh, so much in the last week. Term riots uh, implies uh, a kind of mob mentality and a kind of chaos. And yes, um, some of that is happening in the streets, but I think that's a very narrow picture and term for what is actually happening as a whole. Uh, Martin Luther King famously said that uh, a riot is a language of the unheard, uh, a riot is a language of the unheard. And if we take him seriously on that point, our job is to listen more deeply to the people on the streets, uh, to listen to them, to lift them up, to give them voice. Uh, if you participate in the protests or even if you just listen in on social media, those voices are being recorded and they can be heard. 
Um, there was one conversation on the street in Minneapolis between three black men that really moved me. Um, um, one was 45 years old, 131 and 117. And the older ones were debating tactics about uh, whether we uh, need to um, you know, disrupt everything and, um, or whether we need to push back in a much more uh, peaceful way. And they kind of went back and forth for a little while. And one of them turned to the 17-year-old and said, uh, we've been on the streets for decades and you're going to be on the streets for decades. You're going to be back here in 10 years. We haven't found the solution. So what I want you to do is to come up with a better way. And um, I thought that was just a very beautiful intergenerational comment that this kind of um, uh, systemic racism is something that's been going on for a very long time. And there's a very good reason why people are extremely frustrated uh, and, uh, and upset that each one of these things occurs, events occurs, and nothing seems to stop the ongoing train of these events. Um, and I just want to tell another story. There was another reporter who uh, was from a local TV station who interviewed a, a young black man who couldn't have been, I would say, any more than 16 years old. And the reporter asked him, what is it going to take for you guys to stop this chaos? And um, the uh, young man answered, uh, and it was uh, this really moving combination of rage and tears and the power of wisdom and composure in his voice. And he said, it's not us guys, it's, uh, it's, it's not us, it's the police, it's the madness that they spark up. This is what they encourage, this is what you get when you take a loved one from someone, this is what you get uh, when a lot of people that's, that are hurt and they can't fix it in the right way. This is his way of saying what Martin Luther King said, that a riot is the language of the unheard. They can't fix it in the right way. They, they, they can't anymore uh, uh, depend on the police to protect us like they say they're going to do. So this is what you get. And no, I can't tell you that it's going to end today. I can't tell you that it's going to end tomorrow. I don't know when it's going to end, but it's for all of you to start. We ain't the one that's killing us. Y'all is killing us. We can't make a change if y'all can't change. And so that to me is the big takeaway from all of this, that white people need to make change within their own communities and to work with people of color uh, to insert their and to exert their influence to make transformative social change in our entire justice system, our economic system, our schools and our government. So the number one priority I would say is for, is to listen to the voices of black people, to center black people in the demonstrations, to not allow, to, to listen to when black people are saying, um, don't break, uh, you know, don't break windows, which it, it, uh, as the mayor of, um, of Seattle said in her city and uh, in most of the cities around the country, it's white people who are breaking the windows and causing a lot of the vandalism. Um, the, the important point is to listen to the voices of black people in, uh, on the streets and in the larger organizations. Um, I, I told you I, I uh, studied political philosophy. Uh, I studied Aristotle. He said that the advantage of democracy is that the people know best where the shoe pinches. So I think that we need to listen first to black people when it comes to the issue of racism. And that means listening to the people in the streets 
but also to some of the leading organizations in the, in 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 this area, uh, like the NAACP, uh, and I would say especially the Movement for Black Lives, uh, uh, which has an extensive list of policy prescriptions on their website that address uh, issues of racial injustice in general and police violence in particular. Uh, and there are some specific anti-racist resources for white people, which have been very helpful. And we've helped circulate some of those on social media. And we, we can link those to the to this podcast as well. Um, and so I think uh, that's my primary message to uh, to let black people uh, lead because uh, they're the ones who are being killed. They're the ones who are suffering to listen to the solutions that they put forward. And there's some very good solutions on community policing, on defunding police, on um, new rules, on national, local rules, on police violence, on economic justice in general, uh, on community control, political power, etc. That was a full answer, Dr. Fetterman. Thank you for that. Um, you know, with everything that has been happening, it, it, certainly the the storm of all of this has been very uh, tough to weather, I think, for our country and for our communities. Does all of this renewed social activism that you're seeing give you any sense of hope for where we're going in society? I, I sense some glimmers of that in, in your previous answer. I'd be curious to hear a little bit more from you about, you know, is is there hope? going forward yeah well, what i would say is, is there's a combination of extreme despair and um and and some hope i think that there's no question that since these uh, you know there's been the black lives matter movement has been going on for uh you know uh, a bunch of years now um i uh you know i read i i watched over and over again james baldwin had had a quote uh, that he, he was talking about uh, that people say you've got to give it time for change. And he said, you know, he's been on the planet for 60 years and, um, he, you know, his his uh, mother and father were waiting for change. His brothers and sisters are waiting for change. His uncles and aunts are waiting for change. How long are you going to wait? How long do you expect me to wait for your change? And so there's an extreme amount of pent up frustration and a lot of despair that naturally comes from the fact that there's a lot of promise of change and then there's a lot, not a lot of delivery of change. And so um, I think that, that that's a reason for despair where I would find a, a genuine reason for hope is that, um, is that a lot of the time in the past and even over the last several years, um, uh, the, the demonstrations for Black Lives and Black Lives Matter demonstrations um, have become more and more multicultural. There used to be uh, in the in the civil rights movement there was a concerted effort uh, to uh, bring young white people down to the South, and that was something that that really was very powerful at the time. Uh, but here, in a very spontaneous way. Um, like I said, I was uh, in a demonstration, I would say there are minimum 20,000 people, say 30,000 people marching, uh, maybe 15 blocks um, in San Francisco in a row uh, of people. And these demonstrations and the, even the signs uh, of people uh, from, uh, you know, in, in Spanish, uh, for, uh, you know, uh, Asian Pacific Islanders for uh, Black Lives, uh, 
Sikhs for black lives, white people for black lives, Karens for black lives. Uh, there were, uh, th- th- this is a truly uh, multicultural um, uh, across the entire range of the rainbow, black, white, yellow, brown, red, LGBTQ people, of course, in San Francisco and in many other cities, people with disabilities, young, old. Um, and so I think that that is a tremendous reason for hope uh, that um, that these demonstrations are a, a representative much more of the entire country instead of any particular group. And my hope is that they mark an inflection point uh, for racism in this country. Um, and that in the November election, if people vote, uh, could not, uh, you know, could bring in uh, not just a new uh, national government, but a new vision for American democracy, like uh, the Great Depression brought in the New Deal, um, that will uh, really create structural reform in the country in order to save it. And I think the country does need saving from structural racism. And, uh, and of course, that would have to involve young people, old people, people voting at every level from the president to their local city councils. Um, and I think that um, the, uh, the other thing I would say that gives me hope is that we've had several years of a lot of despair, particularly among people who are, say, on the left or progressive end of the political spectrum. And then there was this, you know, the last few months of the lockdowns of everyone being shut down. The only people who were out in the streets were people who were provo- uh, you know, promoting their, their right to be liberated from the restrictions of, um, of uh, public health protections. Um, but here, what I think I see, and I, I have to say, I, one of the things I was very proud of was that I would say, uh, in, in, in my own observation yesterday in San Francisco, I would say way upwards of 90% of the people who were in the demonstration were wearing masks and were respecting social distance. Um, but I see in this, um, in this kind of rainbow of people, um, the uh, uh, emergence of or reemergence of what I would call the true American multicultural majority who believe in the principles of equality and social justice that so many of us believe and hope and are trying to make into what America is. And so the massive nature of these demonstrations in every state of the country and with support from around the world, to me, concretely demonstrates, demonstrates that uh, the racist, xenophobic, ultranationalist, white supremacist ideology which has seemed to be ascendant is very much the minority view. And um, that doesn't mean it's not extremely dangerous, um, but we can take to heart the fact that most people don't share. Most people don't share that uh, extremist and racist point of view, and they're showing it all over the country and all over the world. And if that doesn't give people hope, uh, I don't know what can. Uh, And so, I also want to say, um, just to temper it as a political scientist, that while I have a sense of hope, um, I think that things can still go in a very opposite direction. Um, I think uh, I was in Egypt in uh, August 2011, uh, soon after the throw of uh, uh, Hosni Mubarak, who had uh, ruled the country for 40 years with an iron fist. And I interviewed journalists and academics and student uh, activist organization leaders and uh, political leaders. And there was in that moment this almost euphoric sense of optimism and hope for the future for Egypt 
and what could emerge after 40 years of dictatorship uh, of a new kind of democratic pluralistic society that would also establish Egypt as a leading voice among the nations, and particularly in the Arab world, as a, a new alternative to oppressive dictatorship and Islamic rule, a third way for the Arab world. And all of that hope has been since crushed by the military intervention of the military regime. So I think we need to take very seriously the threats of sending U.S. troops to American cities and to push back on that as hard as we possibly can. Um, uh, it's been quoted a lot lately, but when Benjamin Franklin came out of the Constitutional Convention and was asked what kind of constitution had been created for the United States, he said, a republic if you can keep it. And so we need to keep the republic, and it is under assault. Uh, and, um, but I think that the demonstrations of the last week show us that there's tremendous hope that we're going to keep the republic. Yeah, just on a, a quick short note to that, I think I was particularly heartened, as were many, to hear our military leaders, even at the Pentagon, pushing back very hard. Regardless of your political affiliation, I think most Americans recognize not only the sanctity of the Constitution, but the vitality that it brings to uh, our own version of democracy. And I think you, you raise an important point, and uh, it is... to we have to temper that uh, hope with some level of pragmatism and, and reality. And there's even more hope to know that across the political spectrum, we're seeing, you know, some movement in terms of, uh, and, and, and some solidarity in certain areas. So, so that's very positive. Really, really appreciate um, your insights. And I know there's a ton more that we could go through today. Um, but, We'll need to close. I just want to add to what you just said there, just one, one last little, uh, you know, addendum, which is that the, you know, not only were, have some military leaders, uh, you know, come forward and said former and current have, have said that, uh, you know, our adherence is to the constitution, not to any particular government. And then and the, the military training is, is that the, that having the military in the United States is the absolute last resort and the national guard should be the, you know, and the local police forces should be enforcing any rules. Uh, but also the wonderful in, you know, the kind of spreading movement of police, uh, in, in various, uh, uh, communities across this country either taking a knee or police chiefs joining the demonstrations. Um, uh, you know, I think that there's a tremendous sign of hope that um, the people in authority positions who are given authority positions in the current, current order of things are really seeing that the country has, the country needs change. And I think that that's a tremendous sign of hope, but it wouldn't have occurred if it weren't for the cameras filming these events, and it wouldn't have occurred if it weren't for all those people out on the street. That's right. So That's thank right. you for that. And the importance of black voices and black leaders, uh, you know, really demanding change and uh, action across the country. Yeah, here, here. So really, Joel, Dr. Fetterman, I should say, I uh, really appreciate you being here. Before we close out this, this is a short episode, so you and I are going to come back to the table for a longer dis discourse, discussion, uh, much like Dr. Jackson and I just had. I think we maybe broke the record for this podcast at an hour and 38 minutes. Uh, I bet we could go uh, right up to that point and longer. Um, before you go, you know, we have this program at Saybrook called Transformative Social Change, a master's degree, 
a doctor of philosophy or PhD degree. What is this degree all about? Um, I think for interested individuals, what can you do with a transformative social change degree? Um, just curious a little bit uh, on your thoughts related to that. Yeah, I think that um, the, the purpose of transformative social change is to address uh, social problems by looking at them in their larger systemic and structural context and to uh, at the same time to explore solutions to those problems that build from the Saybrook mission of uh, creating a more humane, just, and sustainable world. So uh, transformative social change fits so perfectly within the Saybrook mission. Um, the um, And so in, in a sense, I would have to say that everything about the crisis that we're in intersects directly with the uh, with the mission of what transformative social change is, is uh, about. And so uh, now we have 15 faculty members coming from a whole variety of disciplines um, who are uh, addressing various aspects of those themes from that larger systemic level, from the local community aspect to larger global aspect. Now we're closing in on 50 students um, and there'll be more by the fall. We're all devoted to different aspects of these questions. And one of the things that, um, uh, in, in terms of, you know, what the students prepare students to, to do um, is to contribute to uh, policy um, uh, and program development in nonprofit organizations of all kinds uh, that are focused on human rights, um, uh, social justice, environmental action, uh, community development, uh, and uh, uh, a broad variety of social change areas. And so to nonprofit organizations, or what some people call uh, non-governmental organizations, to uh, government agencies, uh, and uh, with communities and social movements, and also uh, in some cases to teach, uh, especially for the, our PhD students, to graduate and to teach at colleges and universities in um, in this area of in, in a broad variety of areas: history, uh, philosophy, psychology, uh, political science, sociology, anthropology, uh, so that they can contribute their interdisciplinary knowledge to those broader to those more uh, traditional fields. And so, um, one of the things I'm really proud of is is that the faculty and the students. Uh, because of the Saybrook mission and because TSC is so embedded in that, um, we're all um, we're all part of that same vision, and it's a real community of change. And I'm very proud to be a, a part of it. Great wise words from a very wise scholar and uh, a longtime faculty member, Dr. Fetterman. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm looking forward to spending more time with you in the future and your colleagues. I know Dr. Meeker and I are uh, hopefully going to set up some time. Thank you, Joel. Appreciate your time today. Thanks very much, Nathan.